Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Kimberly Kirkendall, founder and president at International Resource Development, Inc., a company whose focus is to help both U.S. and Chinese companies operate more effectively in the overseas markets. We talk about Kimberly's very unique China story that started professionally at a very young age, and after her now 30 years working there, how she's seen the business environment change and evolve. We also talk about how Kimberly evaluates a business opportunity in China and the tools she typically leans on to make those decisions. Kimberly also gives us her recommendations for conducting business in China effectively with some pretty raw anecdotes and how, in a nutshell, a brand can optimize their operations in China. Enjoy. So what happens a lot of the time is that it's not to that guy's best interest to create a really robust operating procedure because then they can't, they don't have the excuse to be Superman and fly over and fix everything. So a lot of companies without realizing it have embedded Superman into their processes. And now during the days of COVID, Superman's not going anywhere. So now suddenly you've got R&D issues. You can't get a design project through. You can't get a quality issue resolved. You've had a, a team in China for 10 years. Why the heck have you had a team there 10 years and you still need to fly these two engineers over every three months? Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Can we start with a bit of a background on how you ended up in China and spending so much time there? So I moved to China in 1986, and when I'm speaking in person, I always joke that I must have been 12 at the time, but you know, sadly, that's not true. Uh, I'd studied international business in college, and this was the mid-80s recession in the U.S. I was fluent in Spanish. Mm. International business was a new degree mm. in most U.S. universities, and I was basically afraid I wasn't going to get a job. So I took a class in Asian cultures. Um, the Japanese are not fans of women or foreigners because Japan was the big you know, the big up and coming trading partner at the time for the U.S. Toyota and Honda were really just getting started. Uh, Thailand, great country, nice people. Um, Korea, also a little misogynist, but um, I like the Korean culture. But then I, China, I thought this is a country that, you know, one plus billion people and it's starting to open up. You know, I think that there's going to be some opportunity here. And then I felt an affinity for the village aspect of the Chinese culture. It's, it's very much like living in a small town. People are very relational. Uh, they speak in analogies. You know, it's, it's a lot about, you know, how we get along. And I grew up in a small town that my family had been in for generations. And I thought, I feel comfortable with this. I can do this. So when I started studying Chinese, 
uh, everyone thought it was a really stupid idea. I was at uh, the Ohio State University, and I think I was the first business major to take Chinese. And it was mostly intellectuals in my class because, you know, Chinese is very difficult. And so you had to be an intellectual to study Chinese. Um, and, and people really thought it was a complete waste of time, you know, and, and for years that it was a waste of time. And then OSU had an exchange program. Two students could go to Beijing, Lang at the time, Language Institute, you know, which was the number one language college in the country in China. And then two of their English teachers could go to Ohio State to learn how to teach English better. So they got the better end of the deal, right? But then going to Beijing for, you know, for a year, who gets a scholarship from communist China in 1986? So my roommate was a Czechoslovakian professor from Prague who was studying Chinese for a year to do a dinosaur dig. She was a geology professor or something. And then we had Pakistani military and African diplomats kids. And, you know, uh, the Russians weren't allowed near us. The Russians always had to be off to themselves. They couldn't even hang out with the other Eastern Europeans. So it was a great time that year in China. I uh, learned a lot. Miniature United Nations. You know, I love reading people from that time. We had hot water two nights a week for two hours, which was better than the average Chinese population who had it one night a week for two hours at work where they could shower. Um, but I really learned that year, um, you know, how we, I always say most foreigners go to China with uh, arm's length relationship. They have a translator, they have a car and driver, they're living in the expat hotel. We had a little bit of a buffer, but not much. I mean, we had $50 a month scholarship money and we had to survive and deal with uh, being, you know, the security apparatus around what the foreign students were doing and who we were talking to and all of that. And then I ended up uh, being in China for another four years after that, a US company, hired me because they had set up two factories in a very tiny village uh, north of uh, Suzhou, north of Changshu on the Yangtze River. And they, at the time, they were, China was testing joint ventures. So they set up China, the Chinese government set up a U.S. corporation that became the foreign partner in this factory. So my U.S. client, my U.S. employer really didn't have any ownership but we set up and ran the factory. So the company had had a gentleman before me, an American for two years, uh, setting up the factory, two factories, training all the workers, putting everything in place, and they hired me. And I'd never set foot in a factory in my life. I think I was 22 or 23 at the time. And after, I didn't ask, I didn't ask for six months. After six months, and I knew that they were happy with the job I was doing, I had an office in Shanghai, Back then, no freeways, so it would take three or four hours to get to this village, what now would take an hour and a half, two hours without traffic. Um, and I, so I would go there on the weekends, you know, work with the factory, at the plant, come back to the office in Shanghai. We rented employees because you couldn't employ anyone directly. You, there was no mechanism for setting up a company, really. It was very, very, you know, 80, this was 87, 87, 88, um, 89 when I was there and working there. But um, just, you know, it was great. So I finally said to my boss after six months, why did you hire me? And, you know, because I said I knew nothing. And he said, well, we realized we could teach you manufacturing faster than we could teach somebody with 30 years manufacturing how to work with the Chinese. Like having been a student for a year, you, you already knew, like just in, in, intuitively, 
this isn't going to work. Like I can't do this. And so that was, I call that my MBA. You know, I, I worked with all Chinese men that were older than me, 10 to 30 years older than me. So I learned how to do business, the hardcore state owned entity, government protracted negotiation. So that that's my, I'm a pig in mud when it comes to that. I can, I can negotiate and do deals like that all day long. Love it. Makes me happy. Feels like home you know, and then other people complain now. And I'm like, Oh, no, babe, I got that. And then then they sent me to Hong Kong. And I ran the Hong Kong office and replaced uh, someone in Shanghai for my position and held, had all the Southeast Asian suppliers and international customers. So I spent my first five to six years out of college, basically all in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I how I got started with it. That's amazing. And I love that you mentioned how when you first went there, people speak in uh, uh, um, analogies, mm-hmm. the analogous way of, of, of talking. It's been described in a lot of different ways, uh, a, a very poetic way of talking, constantly quoting Confucius, um, never saying anything directly. And that really threw me for a loop being more of a kind of a blunt instrument type of, of person, I, I prefer directness and I don't understand nuances of not being direct. Did you find uh, it difficult or um, maybe you being very young at the time allowed you to be maybe more nimble and open to it? I really struggled with that analogous way of the way people spoke. I could not pick up what they were putting down because they didn't put it down directly. Did you struggle with that? Well, you know, what's interesting. Um, Chinese is what's called a high context language, you know, as is Japanese and Arabic. And so part of that is what you're talking about is that context part of the language, which is the majority of communication in high context languages is indirect interpretation of the other person's intention and motivation and body language and all of those things. And to your second point, because I was so young, you know, we now understand more about, um, if I was to say, if I was going to get, if I was going to go back to college for anything for fun, it would be like neurolinguistics and, you know, things like that. Cause I love the ideas around how language influences, you know, how we think and process. So, um, my brain wasn't fully formed at that age. You know, we're, you're, we're, we're forming physically forming connections and wires in our brains up until about 25. And so I was forming the adult uh, judgment, reason, processing part of my brain in a fully Chinese environment. So I became very, and I'm, and still am, very adept at the high context language part of it. Um, and that's very, again, very comfortable for me. So what, what many foreigners feel when they go to China, especially at 30 or 35, or, you know, when their brains are wired and they have built up expectations for how you behave in business or social situations, everything feels like you're, you're running up against this, this wall of wrong. You know, I felt that coming back to the U S I felt like, why are they doing this? Like, why are they, why I managed very Chinese, the first teams I managed in the U.S. You know, how to manage up with my supervisors, how to manage laterally the teams that reported to me when I got back to the U.S. I really, even today, I'll have aha moments of, I'll be telling someone the the career decisions I made when I moved back 
from China. And they'll look at me like, well, why would you think A was more important than B? And I think because I was using a Chinese brain at the time, I was, I was valuing things in a very Chinese way. Um, so yeah, it definitely, I think one of the more, the, the difficulties for foreigners that start out at a later age in China is that you are wired. So very subconsciously wired to process and learn and communicate and make decisions and value things from, from your environment. And it's much more difficult to adjust to, to the other culture's environment. I agree. I, I had a similar issue when I first came back. I actually went to San Francisco after I left China for the first time, and I really struggled. I went through two different uh, organizations in about nine months uh, and couldn't quite adjust, um, had difficulty with my staff. I, ha I had a lot of difficulty integrating with the existing infrastructure, both culturally and uh, business infrastructure. And um, I found myself quite lost and confused about how things were operating and how things, it, well, in my opinion, weren't ever getting done. Did you experience something like coming back from the 996 and trying to adjust? Yeah, I think what's part of what is a, is a big adjustment coming back is that in China, typically, especially back in the day, you know, but even today in many ways, Typically, foreigners are there because you have a particular expertise, and so you're in a position of authority. And, you know, the Chinese culture is, is very deferential. So, you know, you're the guest or you're the boss, and so people are very deferential to you. So you're able to, to and, and you also don't have, typically have oversight from the home office. So you're in a position to make decisions and get things done and move quickly you know, and, and it's not that Chinese organizations necessarily get things done faster in, in a sense. They're very hierarchical. So if you can get to the top and the top says do it, it gets done. If, if your communication is at the bottom, then it can take forever to get anything accomplished because the top hasn't approved it. But many times foreigners are, are only engaging at the top of an organization because of what your your position is and, and what your counterpart's position is. So when you're used to that and you're really operating as a, as a lone wolf in many situations working in China, to come back to your home environment, and you're, it's also very colonial in the sense that um, as a non-Asian, the rules don't apply to you. So, you know, and that's also changed, especially in the last five or 10 years, because there's so many foreigners in China now that the police and the average population don't cut you slack if you, you know, jaywalk or break a rule. But 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I mean, I could walk into the Irish embassy un, unquestioned because I was white and, and they weren't going to ask me if I was Irish or not. I just walked in. You know, so um, you, you, and that's one of the reasons I left after five or six years is that what my friends and I noticed was the people that they're people who become lifetime expats in some way because they can't, they can't be, they like not fitting in. They like not having the rules apply to them. They're, they're comfortable being that lone wolf. And when they go back to their home environment and they, people are not deferential and you have to play ball in someone else's court, then um, they can't. They, they can't do it, especially when they're 
over 10 years or 12 years or the longer you are, you know, outside of your environment. And I just didn't want to have that choice taken away from me. I wanted to come back um, when I would be able to reconnect in my own culture and to be able to be function in my own culture. Um, And then if I wanted to, you know, I travel back and forth quite frequently, normally, obviously not COVID time, but, but yeah, I think that's um, a big part of it too. You made a good point. Um, also talking about people who come there, but don't really live in China. They, uh, as I used to call it, they live on China. They are there with Intel or Goodyear or Accenture or Fidelity or PwC or somebody, and they have drivers. They're put up in hotels. They have IEs. Their their kids' schools are paid for, which are they're getting charged fifty thousand dollars a year to go to, um, but they don't have to foot the bill. Um, and you know they're not really there. But you were there, and you did live in China. Truly lived in China. How have you seen the business environment in China evolve or change over the past 30 years? Well, I think um, I call them drive-by guys. <laughs> That's my nickname for it, but I like on China. You know, it's, I, I was, I was uh, criticized quite heavily in the early 2000s because people would say to me, you know, your experience in China in the late 80s and early 90s isn't relevant anymore. You know, China in 2000, 2005, is a completely different place. It's a completely different place to do business. Everything's different here. Your old ways don't matter. And I used to say to them, you're wrong. You're you're operating at the veneer level, right? At the veneer level, it's the new China, the modern China. And it's we're going to be open and everything's going to be capitalist and you're welcome to come here and make money. I said beneath that, we're in the we're in the 1980s. We're in the 1970s. You know, the, the, the moving the Communist Party and apparatus and how it functions, it's harder to move than a barge. You know, so it's it's and, and people would tell me constantly, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And so now in the last four or five years, now that China is some of the veneers cracking mm-hmm. and or they're replacing it with a new veneer. And it's, it's a more muscular communist party, you know, engagement in the world and, and in business. People are, are, are bemoaning that and wringing their hands and saying, oh, my God, this is China's changing for the worst. And I'm like, you keep missing the point. It's not changing. You know, I, I'm, I'm right. Right. I was saying in 2000, 2005, I'm being proven right because you're, you're now you're seeing that it's always been this way. That's just not who you dealt with or the face they chose to show you. But that doesn't mean it wasn't the underlying, you know, musculature of the country. So I think one of the reasons, the other thing I get criticized, you know, I post on LinkedIn, what I think are very uh, middle of the road conversations around commercial technical transactions and, and business changes in China. And I try to stay out of the politics. And some people, there was a very famous person who writes a lot about China who was attacking me quite a bit a year or two ago on, you know, you love China and you're defending China. And I'm, I'm like, look, I've, I, I, I never bought into it's, it's going to become capitalist and open up and become more democratic. So I'm not disappointed. Yeah. So just because you bought into that and now you're disappointed, don't be upset with me. 
you know, because I'm not disappointed. I never expected what you expected in the first place. You know, I've been a realist from day one. And that was, I think, one of the other benefits for me. A lot of the students who went to China, you know, the European and American, you know, the, the more developed nation people in the mid 80s, they were in love with either communism as a as a concept, you know, that it's better for the people mm. or ancient Chinese traditional culture. And I, I didn't go over for either of those reasons. I went over for purely selfish. I'm, I'm going to be able to make a career here. And I wanted to live internationally right out of college, which is not easy to do, especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought this is the best choice for me. So I've never been disappointed because I never had the rose colored glasses on in the first place. Would you say that it's easier to do business and I mean, we could talk even back from the late 80s when you were there the first time or the 90s or the 2000s. Pick whatever spot you want. Is it easier now? Is it harder now? Or is it neither, just different? I think what factors into answering that is the generations. So let's let's think about the Chinese generations. So the people who are still in power, but they're they're aging out are people that really grew up, were, were children at the tail end of the Cultural Revolution. So they've seen a huge amount of change in their lives. They're closest to our World War One, World War Two generation in you know, North America and Europe. So they're very risk averse. They're very um, command and control driven. So the way they do business is, is very top-down, hierarchical, you know, lots of structure, um, you know, hold your position. Then the next generation is the one that saw come, came of age in the 90s, 80s and 90s, as China was starting to open and change. They're the most Western facing, you know, so they're the ones in their 40s now and they're, you know, early, late 40s and early 50s. So they're the ones that are the easiest to do business with in many ways. They're the most Western facing. They came of age in China when they were looking at Western um, capitalistic models for business and Jack Welch, you know, is a great guy for them and all that. So that generation's people that came to China with, with that generation from the West, that's an easy generation to work with in many ways, right? And then the youngest generation, 35 and under generation, is very, very nationalist because China, was, as they were opening, didn't want to lose uh, you know, adherence to the Communist Party and, and being proud of and loyal to China. So they really ramped up the nationalist rhetoric in the schools for that generation. And they only know wealthy, successful, anybody can be a millionaire China. You know, so for them, they're difficult to do business with because they don't ha- they're not all that interested in what Westerners think or say or do. You know, they're very confident about their opinions and, and what they're doing and how they want to do it. And they don't need you. You know, so I think what's changed now, if you look at the foreigners, okay, you're over 40, I would say 40 into 50 generation. They typically came into China when China was starting to open and, and it felt easy. And so now it feels hard by comparison. Because, you know, that it's that that veneer is coming off the younger generation isn't as thankful that that that, that white face is here. You know, the the Chinese have become much more capable. You know, back 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of trained 
private management in China because everything was coming out of a state-owned entity phase. So you could be a rock star just because you had some private business experience. And, and now coming into China, you have to be, if to be a rock star, you have to be a rock star because you're better than other people who have the same skill set you do, you know? So the, the oldest American generate a foreign generation to come into China, they were hostile to China. The ones in their fifties and sixties, they were hostile to China because when they first came in, it was on the coattails of an agent from Taiwan or Hong Kong. And those guys came into China and said, oh, the Taiwanese are honest and the Chinese lie, you know, and you can't, you know, all that kind of rhetoric that these guys heard when they first came. And, and they, they believed it, the foreigners believed that and adopted that. And they can never really trust the Chinese, especially if they did business because Taiwan and China are like, you know, Britain and the United States. I mean, we may share a language and a heritage to some extent, but business is extremely different. It's done very differently. Um, and most people don't appreciate that. But the, I find the younger generation of expats, let's say 40 and under, 35 and under, they typically do, they don't have the struggles in China in, in many ways because they, they also, like the younger Chinese generation, they respect that this is a developed country and that, they're, that they expect people to have an opinion and to, to have a capability of being a good entrepreneur and being a successful person. So they really don't, they don't have the, the mental baggage that the 35 and up generation tends to have for you know, two different reasons. The oldest ones, because they bought into the Taiwan, Hong Kong, sort of you can't trust the Chinese. And then the, let's say 35 to 55, because when they came over, they were colonialist, you know, white faced gods that could do whatever they wanted to do. And now that's not the case, you know, so the younger generation of foreigners, I feel really, and that's why it's very funny because on, you know, in a lot of business forums and on LinkedIn, I get along really well with the younger expat generation because that's my perspective is this is this is the reality of China. I don't have rose-colored glasses and I expect them to be intelligent, entrepreneurial, capable partners, you know, and, and I don't have to cross over a lot of mental boundaries to get to that. It's natural to me. So I think that, is it harder or easier? I think it depends on what Chinese generation you're talking about, what foreigner generation you're talking about. From a government regulatory standpoint, it's definitely easier. I mean, there's, there's no question that it's easier, but you also have a lot more domestic competition. So market entry is not as easy because you're not the first um, foreign language school and, and you've got hundreds of competition, Chinese company com competition. So people are complaining about, I can't get into the market now. And it was easy for me 20 years ago. I'm, I want to say, duh, <laughs> you know, you were, you were the first one in the market 20 years ago and now it's, it's flooded. What, why would you think it would be as easy? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your company, International Resource Development. You help businesses find opportunity in China. And, and, and then you can correct me, but how do you evaluate a business opportunity in China? And are there any specific tools, data sets, uh, places you go uh, where you can lean on these tools or advice or data? Okay, two, I'll give two, answer the first statement and then the second one. Um, 
So my, I've had international resource development has been around for about 20 years now. And the first 10 years, it kind of ro- rode the wave of China opening, right, from 2000 to 2020. But the first 10 years was um, opening plants for various companies. You know, um, major corporations, name brand corporations that I helped them, you know, site selection, setting up the plant, negotiating with the government, hiring the workers, you know, getting it up and going. So a lot of the first 10 years was that and supply chain, you know, problems and, and re- dealing with suppliers and all of that. The second five years, so from 2010 to 2015, it was a lot more about sales and sales offices and how do we get into the market in China and what is our channel development and, you know, how do we look at things? And then the last five years have been what I call the oh shit moments. You know, I, I still have set, like, I think four or five years ago, I had two factory setups at the same time. I've set up sales offices. Right now, I've got a client. We're looking to sell their manufacturing company in China because it just, the margins aren't enough for them to keep their capital there. But they're setting up two joint ventures on the service side and the software side, which is, again, very indicative of kind of how things are changing. Um, so now it's more of, or I get calls from clients I've worked with for 10 or 15 years. We have, you know, inventory at distributor A. We want to change to distributor B in China. We need to move the money from the U.S., but the goods are only going within the country, and, and that's difficult to do, and how do we do that? You know, so it's a lot more um, problem-solving. And I always say that my my niche is typically I'm very technical on the commercial transaction side. So I spent my 20s in supply chain and manufacturing. In my 30s, I became a CPA. You know, so I do the the tax uh, Chinese side, VAT tax. The state of Ohio calls me with questions on China's VAT tax. Um, HR labor law. How do we shut down a company? What severance look like? But, but the intersection of those transaction details, but also the cultural side of why do they keep asking me for this document, you know, and, and um, why are they telling me this when they mean, you know, when I think what they mean is something else, right? So it's the intersection of those two things. Um, so then the second question was evaluating opportunities. And I think that you know, it's, it's, you need to use the same metrics that you use in any situation. You know, what is my, what is my market? What is my market size? If it's on the sales side, what's my market? What's my market size? What kind of channel do I use? Um, you know, how, am I going to start out with an agent and then a distributor and then a couple technical salespeople? And then eventually I'll have, I'll manage the key customers myself. And then maybe I'll have my own distributors. You know, it's a normal growth cycle that you see in, in almost any country. The challenge is data collection. Because in most established um, economies, you have Dun & Bradstreet, you have 50 or 100 years of data, publicly available data on that company and and where who are their customers and how are they transacting business and have they ever been sued and in china doesn't have that kind of public database you can get a, a certain amount of information about when the company was founded and their initial registered capital and that sort of thing but you're not going to get really robust information and so uh you need to rely on indirect uh information gathering so you have individuals who go physically to the location 
of the target if you're looking to acquire a business or to, um, you know, to the customers, you have to, to reach into a network of people to ask about that company, that market, that business, find out what's going on. But what's, what's challenge, I, I think, for a lot of foreign companies is it's a, very, um, it's a very indirect, opaque form of information gathering. And if they don't have resources in China to do that for them, or, or they don't themselves have those resources, then they're not going to get information. So for example, I got a call from a private equity company um, a few years ago, and they said, it's Monday, right? When they called me, they said, we are putting a bid on a US company, we have to put the bid on Friday, it's a blind bid. We understand they had a factory in China that they shut down. And that they now are using an OEM manufacturer that they're reliant on, you know, that's the only manufacturer of some significant part of their production. We heard about you because all my business is referral. I have no advertising. They said, we heard about you. We want to know what of that is true. And so I had like three days, right? So I, I reached out to my, my people and I had, I, with one of my clients permission, who was in a very similar industry, we made an arrangement. I call these James Bond visits, right? We made an arrangement to go visit the OEM manufacturer representing a third party company as a potential customer, right? And we go into the factory. And, you know, one of the many things I love about China and the Chinese is that they're honest to the point of being naive in so many circumstances. And so my, my representative is in the factory and talking to them and saying, so do you have any foreign customers? Yeah, we have this big US customer. Well, how's that going for you? you know, and they're like, oh, they went bankrupt a few years ago. Their China business did. And they owed us like $500,000, but we're collecting it because we're upcharging everything we sell the US by 10 cents until we collect the half a mil. And we've collected about 200,000, but there's 300,000 left to collect. Well, none of that was disclosed to the buyer, you know, in any way. And, and then I sent someone else to go to the physical plant location, which was an hour or two outside of Shanghai. And they get there and there's notices posted all over the office building. And in the factory, you haven't paid your rent. You know, and, and again, you're, you're, I sent a British girl, you know, so she's standing in the middle of an industrial park an hour and a half outside of Shanghai on her own. And the Chinese around her are like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know? And so she starts talking to them. So what happened to this factory? And they're like, oh, they shut down. They never paid their suppliers. And then we confirmed that they hadn't actually liquidated the business. So you're looking at three or $400,000 of undisclosed liabilities that I was able to report back to my client for the, you know, not a hell of a lot of money, frankly, that I charged him for that. And, and that allowed him to adjust his bid. So he didn't win the bid because he was higher than people who didn't know about that. So information gathering in China, looking at an opportunity, in my opinion, is the, it's the same basic, you know, process and metrics that you would use in any opportunity whether it's a supplier or a customer, it's how you gather that information and how you verify that it's, that you're really assessing the channel properly and understanding how the sale is being made for your type of product category and how 
um, what is the payment terms typically for your type of product? Because they can very, very commonly in China be three months or six months or a year. So where Americans or foreigners go wrong in, in these assessments is not that they that they shouldn't be following the standard process. It's that they're making assumptions during that process about, well, everywhere around the world, it's net 30 or, you know, we're a big, we're a big player in the market. We can insist on net 30 terms, or we value our product because it improves safety in the coal mines. That's why the Chinese are going to want it. When in fact, that's not why they want it. They want it because the other big name companies have it and, and it's a brand thing. You know, so so I think that it's it's the it's the way that you go about um, collecting data and assessing the opportunity that's very different. And I would say understanding. I mean, data collection, as you said off the top, is difficult. But then being able to read the data to understand what are the markers I should be looking for, what are the red herrings, which is BS, which is truth. Just being able to decipher uh, and distinguish between the data is a whole nother ball game in of itself. Yeah, very true. And it's it's one of the companies I did some work for uh, starting probably 10 years ago, but they were in a very um, challenging industry. And so the U.S. company was was hemorrhaging money and struggling. And so they asked me to, to temporarily become, they terminated their international sales VP. And they said, can you run our China office, you know, for a few years? We're looking for a buyer. So I had set up the company in China. I had hired the staff. I knew their, their business and their market. So it was logical for me to take it over. And, you know, I'm in China constantly normally. So, but at one point I had a meeting with the management in the U.S. And they said, why don't we just eliminate the whole distributor level? Why, why are we even using distributors? Why don't we, we have our own sales team. They're going to the end user to make sure that our component is specced into the equipment that they buy, multi-million dollar equipment. Why do we need the distributor? And, and they'd been in the market for seven or eight years. And yet somehow between their Chinese staff and their American manager, either it had not been articulated or they had not heard it, right? One or the other, or maybe both. So what the, the situation was that was the distributor was providing a financing function because the U.S. wanted to sell the component, which was like $10,000, $15,000 a piece. They wanted to sell it and collect immediately. Well, the, the equipment manufacturer wouldn't get paid from the end customer for a year or two. And they didn't want to put out all the money on the componentry because they weren't going to get paid. for The end customers were government entities. So the distributor would add on a 30% markup because they had to carry that receivable for 12 to 24 months. And, you know, interest rates in China off of, because nobody does, the banks don't do operating capital loans. The banks do asset-based loans in China. So operating capital comes out of the shadow market, you know, shadow lending. And shadow lending is 20 to 30% annual rates. So their 30% markup, which seems to the Americans like pure easy money profit that we could absorb. When I explained to them, do you want to finance this trade for 12 to 24 months? Then yeah, we can save the 30%, you know, and, and then try to collect it too, right? And, and they said, no, 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 we'll keep the distributors. 
So that's just one of those things that companies assume that the, the buying process is, is, is similar to what they're used to, or they look at it from a purely, um, you know, written on a piece of paper. We, we sell, we sell to the end user who specs to the OEM and the distributor imports it and sells it to the OEM. So if we cut out the distributor, it's all okay. They don't see underneath it, the value that's being created by the different people in this, in this, um, chain in the channel. Mentioned earlier, and again, I'm highly paraphrasing here, but you love to get muddy, <laughs> love to negotiate. It's, it's your fun place. So, you know, if I could channel Professor Kirkendall here uh, from the Ohio State, uh, go Buckeyes. Can you give our audience a bit of a lesson on conducting a business negotiation in China? You know, it's everyone hears and, and reads and understands that China and many high context language countries are relationship driven. And, and so what the first thing that's important to understand is that in negotiation, you're typically negotiating with what they perceive, even if you don't as a partner as someone that is either selling to you or, you know, buying from you. And that's a relationship that's going to be ongoing. And so the negotiation, it's, you know, I was, I have a class that I started for Disney um, 20 years ago. They asked me to come down and teach their supply chain teams how to work better with their Chinese suppliers. And I teach it to companies and groups of like 20 and under, and I've taught thousands of people over the years. And, you know, I always say to them that, you know, Chinese negotiation, it's like you're holding hands, like you're shaking hands and you're, you've got a good grip on their hand because you're friends. And if their daughter needs a kidney, you're giving her one. Right. And in the other hand, you have a knife. And, and it's that frenemy relationship of we're going to hold on. We're not going to let go. I might be stabbing you. You might be stabbing me. You know, but at the end of the night, we're going to go have dinner and drinks and truly the friendship is there, right? It's really, truly there. And if you really, really, really needed it, if you came to me as a friend and said, I need you to knock a hundred grand off that million dollar price one way or the other, because I am not going to keep my job. They will see what they can do to make that happen. You know, but, but it's difficult. Americans, especially over the last 40 years, have, have abandoned relationship business in, in most ways. I mean, there's some industries in some part of the country where it's still done, but we've become so much more, and I blame it on our lawyer lobby. We're so liability driven and fearful of showing favoritism or not getting the bottom price. And it's all about objective, not subjective. So, you know, people don't want to have that. They don't trust themselves even. Like, how do I manage that relationship? So in negotiation, you need to understand that it's a partnership and that if I'm giving a little, they're giving a little, you need to slow down. We tend to be go, 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 go about this. You need to take a pill. You need to relax. You need to let it happen over a couple days. You're going to talk about it. They're going to say yes. They're going to leave. They're going to come back and say no because someone else said no. You know, and getting mad doesn't help you. It doesn't help them. So it really is finding out what is it, what are their KPIs? Frankly, Chinese negotiation works anywhere in the world because it's, it's rooted on human nature. 
it's rooted on the understanding of what is this individual's weakness? What is the organization's weakness? How can I make this guy look good to his boss? What are his KPIs at the end of the year? What's their short-term needs? What their long-term needs? And, and so many Westerners, and I'll pick on Americans because I am American, but so many Americans in particular, it's like, it should be simple. It should be, I'm paying you $2, you want it or not. We try to take the human out of it, which is foolishness. You know, it's, it's not going to work. Humans, you can't take the human out of it, out of business or out of negotiation or out of any of this. So I feel like to the, the Chinese are not necessarily, negotiation isn't, in China isn't difficult because they're making it more difficult. We're making it difficult because we're trying to strip all of the messy humanness out of it. And they lean into the messy humanness of it. I want to ask you a fun question, just to interrupt before we get to our last question. Your thoughts on Baijiu? <laughs> the quality of Baijiu has improved dramatically since the late 80s. Let's start with that. So it was, you think it's bad now? Like, oh my God, you have no idea. <laughs> no idea. And you could always tell the wor a smell worse than Baijiu, like, you know, in its, in its natural form is when it's being sweated out of some guy in the morning in the gym after he drank too much the night before, because that is just rancid right there. Uh, yeah. So it's gotten much better over the years. I think it's, you know, I, I can, I've drank my share of Baijiu. I can drink Baijiu. I, I typically, when I take clients to business meetings, what's nice is that over the years there, it's a lot less um, challenge drinking than there was even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 20, 30 years ago, a big part of the, the big splashy dinners and the, the drinking fests were that people didn't make enough money to, to barely feed themselves. And they, they couldn't afford alcohol on their own. So going out to a business dinner was a chance to load up on calories, honestly, and at the company's expense and, and to be able to, um, have alcohol when you couldn't really afford it yourself. So as a, as a business person in the late eighties and early nineties, I realized that if I didn't agree to go to some, you know how they take you on these weekend tours here and there, if I didn't agree to go on a weekend tour, they couldn't go. And, and they'd maybe never been to see that site with their wife and daughter or whatever. And, it, and, and taking me allowed them to go or it allowed them to have, have a meal that night, you know, that was more than they could eat normally. So I think that culture like fed in for about 10, 15 years into all the eating and drinking um, style and, and way things are done. I think now that people have so much more money, um, there's less pressure on someone to drink. There's less pressure on you to eat certain foods or a lot of foods, you know, than there was before. But I, I train my clients with Baijiu strategies. So, you know, if you've been to a dinner, I'm, I'm sure you have been to many, but you know that they often have their five guys, right? And maybe there's only two of you. So each one of the five of them will toast you individually. So you're drinking five times and they're drinking once. So you've got to bring your own, like in the, in the West, we have designated drivers. I always say in China, there's designated drinkers. You bring your own drinkers, you know, and then those guys can, your guys can individually, you know, toast each one of them to get them drunk. 
right? So it's all of these games. I was in the middle of nowhere in probably Gansu or Hebei province at a very tiny village factory with, and I had this American probably 27, 28 year old engineer with me. We were looking at this factory because the company they want, the Chinese company wanted a joint venture with the Americans. This kid was six foot four, 300 pounds of ex football player body mass, right? And we went to lunch and I I said, there's going to be a lot of drinking. And he's like, I'm good. Like I can drink. And I said, I'm just telling you, if you need to, you know, you challenge drink, you can, you know, hold, I would always hold the cup in my hand. So you can't see how much of it I drank. I could drink half of it. And then I would re-pour it before I'd set it down. So I was only gone bang with half, not the whole thing. I have all kinds of fun little strategies with that. But what this kid did was that he and the, you know, the communist party rep, is always the biggest drinker. I swear to God, they get their job because they can outdrink everyone else. So he and the Communist Party rep were like going toe to toe on the alcohol. And at the very end of the lunch, the Communist, and the Communist Party reps, what, 120 pounds soaking wet, you know, and maybe 50. So that guy's like, at the very end, he's like, all right, one more drink. And, and the young guy looks at him, he goes, okay, I'll drink what's left of mine and I'll also drink hers what was left of, of my glass. So he lifts up two glasses. And in my, in my mind, I'm cringing because I'm thinking, honey, you're going to have dinner with them tonight. They're going to be scouring the countryside for somebody who can outdrink the guy they brought to lunch because you've embarrassed the crap out of them right now. So when we left, I said to him, look, dude, I got to go. You know, I've got a train tonight because I got another client business tomorrow somewhere else. But are you going to be okay tonight? Because they're going to bring out the, they thought this was a big enough gun for you. They're going to bring out the big guns, dude. He's like, if I have an hour or two nap, I'll be fine. And I saw him back in the U.S. when we were debriefing with corporate I saw him back in the U.S. and I said, how'd it go? He's like, I was fine. I told the company, can I just take him with me on like all future trips? Because this guy is awesome. (laughs) All right. Last question here. Uh, I'll try to get you out of here. You know, you do a lot of work of of helping brands uh, and companies who already are in China to really optimize uh, their operations. Um, how, How do you do that? Well, I think, you know, the, the, uh, I've done a lot during the COVID lockdown. I've probably done 30 webinars, um, for various government organizations around the country and, um, you know, nonprofits and a good portion of some of it's on, on e-commerce, which is kind of how we met originally, Mm -hmm. um, e-commerce, social media marketing, but also supply chain operations, you know, a lot of those things. And I tell companies, I don't care what you think of your operation system, you know, for how you're buying goods or, you know, managing your factories overseas, your sales office. I don't care how good you think it are. I guarantee you, I will rewrite it. I guarantee you, I will rewrite it because number one, the majority of the time it's not in writing. Mm. A lot of how the business is run on a, on a granular day-to-day level is not in writing. Mm. It's, it's assumed that, that the Chinese will understand if we send over a purchase order, we've done it 10 times before, this is how they should handle it. And Americans are, again, picking on Americans because I am one, but they always say, you know, how could the factory have done X, Y, Z? How could they have screwed this up? How could they end up like, well, show me where you told them what to do, you know? And a lot of times it doesn't exist. We, we tend to write, number one, a lot of 
uh, North American European com companies have grown up over 30, 50, 70, 100 years. And you have all this tribal knowledge in the business of how things get done or in your industry, how things are done, how they were done elsewhere. And that's not written down. And you can't assume that that China or any other country in, in a different business environment with different laws and regulations and norms is going to do things the way you do. So you need to write it down and in detail to the point that a 12 year old could pick it up mm. and, and either make it or process the documents or whatever it is. So that's a big part of it. And, and so I, one of the things I often say to companies is your documents are written like policies, not procedures. A policy is you should drink eight ounces of water every four hours. That's a policy. A procedure is at 9 a.m., and at 2 p.m., you're to sit in this chair for 15 minutes. With your right hand, you grasp a, a glass with your thumb pointing you and your fingers away that's filled with eight ounces of water. And you're going to lift it up and you're going to tilt it and drink from it for those three minutes until it's empty. And we just don't, we don't write like that because in, in our culture, it's insulting. Mm -hmm. It's insulting to someone to give them that level of detail. And, and in the Chinese culture, for again, my Disney class, variety of reasons, it is insulting not to give me that much detail. It's because you're leaving me to fail if you don't give me that enough detail. You know, and so um, it's it that is my 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 number one overreaching. How do you fix your your operations? Is is communication, written procedures. Uh, we we start often with clients with an authority matrix. You know, who has the authority to decide? You know, in these key uh, turnover points, who decides? Who is notified? you know, and are there dollar amounts or size or, or timing amounts or whatever upon which it's, you know, requires more authorizations. And so many times when we work on these projects, it's, it, they, these are, many of these things are things the company has not even really considered. So it's not just about taking what they're doing and writing it down. It's a very collaborative process of challenging and saying, why is that working for you? If it's not working, why? How do we want to do it? And then how will it fit within the Chinese business structure? With, you know, in China, VAT tax drives so many business decisions. You know, how, what your sales price is, um, how you invoice customers, how frequently you invoice, how many employees you have in the accounting department. I mean, it, it really is a, it's, and, we don't, and we don't have VAT tax in the U.S. So Americans have zero understanding of how it's calculated and, and how it drives business. And so that's just one example of where Americans might have one set of accounting procedures for their operation in China, expecting that a uh, you know, $100 million plant could have a controller and one cashier when the Chinese would have, may, probably not a controller even, but they would have three or four staff accounts and a cashier. 
because there's so much transactional paperwork and accounting in China is very compliance driven. It's not in the, in the West, it's very management accounting. How do we use accounting to manage our business? And in China, accounting is how do we comply with government taxes and regulations? Understood. So again, I also have client problems where the American controller is saying, why isn't my Chinese accountant able to answer me? Is she incompetent? or she doesn't understand the business, or she's lying, and it's because she's a compliance accountant who doesn't process the accounting information in such a way to even think about how it impacts our future cash flows, or how we make um, go-no-go decisions on adding new products. Mm-hmm. You know, so these are, there's just so many things in, so it's number one, it's writing everything down, which I guarantee you, you don't do, companies don't do. And then number two, it's the nuance of how do, how do decisions get made? How is the environment different in the other culture, in the other uh, country? What, is, what, how are the transactions different? How does that drive the operations? Mm-hmm. And it's really those two things that, um, that we really get very deeply into to help resolve. And I think right now with the supply chain disruption that we're seeing around the world, it's, it's showing us a lot of our weakness in our supply chain. So it's a good time to fix those things. The other one I would mention quickly, mm-hmm. and these are all my, my quasi trademarked phrases, okay. but um, it's what I call the Superman syndrome. So a lot of foreign companies, they have the, a couple engineers or in a smaller company, it may be the CEO or a vice president. This is the guy who helps set China up, whether it's their suppliers or their own factory or their sales office. When he goes to China, he's Superman. We're kind of back to the colonialism. He's taller, richer, and better looking, you know, just like Superman is in his uniform. Hmm. When he comes home, he's Clark Kent. His wife wants him to take out the garbage. The, his, the other managers in the office don't really respect him. His boss gives him shit. But when he's in China, he's staying in a luxury hotel and everyone takes him out to dinner and they tell him how fabulous he is. So what happens a lot of the time is that it's not to that guy's best interest to create a really robust operating procedure because then they can't, they don't have the excuse to be Superman and fly over and fix everything. So a lot of companies without realizing it have embedded Superman into their processes. And now during the days of COVID, Superman's not going anywhere. So now suddenly you've got R&D issues. You can't get a design project through. You can't get a quality issue resolved. You've had a, a team in China for 10 years and, and I want to, I've said to the companies, you know, why the heck have you had a team there 10 years and you still need to fly these two engineers over every three months? Like really? To, to the tune of a hundred grand a year in cost, do you think that's a good idea? Like why isn't the Chinese team um, authorized and trained and capable to manage those kind of things without these guys by this point? So, so these are all the things that I think feed into weakness in, in operations. Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights and we wish you all the best and, you know, good luck and stay safe. And hopefully you'll be able to return uh, to, to China soon. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. 